This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we're welcoming you this week to the first in a new series from the book of Isaiah. Um, I've actually been out of the loop on this one, Sam. Do we have a, a subtitle for it already? Uh, I'm sure it's about hope. <laughs> I know that in the conversations that it was hope, a message of hope, I think, maybe. Okay. So there's a subtitle here, folks, and we'll be sure to have it straightened out by next week. I didn't; it wasn't available for the logo when I got the logo to use on the website. So, but it is from the Book of Isaiah. Yeah, once it gets beyond concepts and starts moving into graphics, they want me nowhere near anything having to do with design. So okay. I've I've lost track of where it landed. Yeah, and and I you know and and as the communications guy, I get everything when it's done, and then I can put it on the app and on the website. And so so there is a catchy subtitle, folks. Promise you that, and uh, we'll have that for you next week. But we're going to start this week with our study in Isaiah, and we're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 6. And before we start into the text, because the text opens with, in the year that King Uzziah died. So Mm -hmm. obviously there's something about that place and time and the character involved. Sam, when was this in Israel's history? What was going on? And who was Uzziah? Is that, you know, give us some context here before we jump in. Mm Mm-hmm. So Uzziah is the king. We're about 750 years before the birth of Jesus, so 750-ish B.C., and Uzziah is this king who comes along who reigns for 52 years in Jerusalem. So you got to think, like, he is equivalent of the kingdom of Judah, right? He is, like, he is synonymous with it. He's the only king that most people remember who are alive, and so This guy has come along. The Bible tells us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Um, He does a ton of good work. And under his leadership, all of Israel is like just everything is blessed. You know, their their amount of livestock, their wealth, their foreign relations, their military might, their defeating the Philistines, like everything about Uzziah is wonderful until this particular point in his ministry. And if you want to know if you want to read more on his biography, go to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And the turning point happens in verse 15. Before that everything's amazing. But you get to verse 15 and it says this. So his fame spread far and wide for he was marvelously helped until he became strong. And that is one of <laughs> one of the most profound verses about leadership, a warning in leadership. And so it says, his fame be- spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped. God's blessing was on him. He was anointed. You know, Judah thrived and flourished until he became strong. Hmm. And the next verse, but when he was strong... His heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of the incense. So let me let me summarize what's going on. In, in the law, in the Bible, the king was forbidden from carrying out the priestly duties. He couldn't go into the temple. Um, but Uzziah comes along and says, do you see how powerful I am? Do you see how amazing I am? Do you see what I've done for Judah? Do you see me, 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 me? And he says, Psh, I am worthy to enter into the temple of the Lord. And as soon as he goes in, he is stricken with leprosy, and it's a leprosy that he will have until it kills him. And so when we hear at that at the beginning of this passage, you know, in the year King Uzziah died, this was a tremendously traumatic event for the kingdom of Judah. It would have it would have thrown them for a loop. It would have been very destabilizing time. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's like uh how many of the kings do we read this about? Like 
when we did the series on Solomon. I mean, Solomon mm-hmm. was this fantastic leader. He was like, he was Jedediah, right? God's beloved. He was this, this incredible king who, as he became more successful, more powerful, more wealthy, he let his heart be turned away. It's the story mm-hmm. of every celebrity megachurch pastor that's fallen in this country. It's I, like – I was just about to say that. Yeah. You know, they they yep. do great until they become famous and they become strong mm-hmm. and then they become self-important and then that's where it goes down the drain. Yeah. Anytime you hear a, a Christian leader say, look what I have done, watch out. Yeah. <laughs> because it's all going to come tumbling down yeah. soon. Yeah, and they, they the more that their resume is padded, the more dangerous it is. I think sometimes. Mm-hmm. But um, all right, so let's jump in. Uh, this is Isaiah chapter six, beginning in verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I love this first image because mm-hmm. it talks about the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and you know, King Uzziah had just died. So, you know, Isaiah, as as an Israelite, is going to have felt something like, I'm kind of adrift right now. Uzziah was the king that led us to all of these great successes. And now all of a sudden, he's gone. What do I have to look forward to? And God gives him this vision, not just of the Lord standing there or, or giving him a big hug or whatever, But the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, the train of the robe filling the temple, that all speaks to the Lord has conquered every other king. The Lord is above all. It has to be, I think, a reassuring reminder to Isaiah that Uzziah was not the ultimate king. No, definitely not. In fact, in this opening verse, there's probably enough for like six different sermons. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try to refrain myself here. Yeah, we, we don't um, have that long today. <laughs> but but what's going on? And another thing about the historical status of where Judah is right now. In fact, this was just in the news recently where they have found evidence of this great earthquake. If you go to the opening verse of the prophet Amos, he talks about this unbelievably nation-changing earthquake that happened during the reign of Uzziah. And it's also in uh, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5, where it talks about, you know, just like the earthquake that happened during Uzziah where everybody fled, there was a great refugee crisis. So at some point during the reign of Uzziah, and archaeologists are now finding evidence of this massive earthquake um, in Jerusalem, sometime during his reign, and they believe that it's toward the end of his reign, Jerusalem was hit with a massive earthquake. Wow. Um, they found the, the epicenter was closer up toward Tel Hazor, and the archaeologist who excavated up there, and sorry for nerding out on this, but just I want everyone to understand what's going on in the nation right now. They found evidence of, a, of an earthquake that is, was so massive that they estimate that on the Richter scale, this would have been 8.2 in magnitude. It leveled every city for a long distance. Now, to give context, the earthquake that happened in Haiti in 2010 that killed 200,000 people, that was a 7.0. The Richter scale grows in strength exponentially. So when you're talking 8.2, this is more forceful than, you know, Mount Vesuvius, <laughs> Mount St. Helens. This is, this is way, way up there in some of the most powerful things they've ever been able to detect. This was a huge earthquake that left cities devastated, people in, in refugee status. And this is when, when Isaiah says, in the year King Uzziah died, you've not only lost your king that has been your king for 52 years and brought stability and all that other stuff, who died, by the way, in scandal – he is the megachurch pastor who has now, you know, brought disrepute to the Lord, right? Right. In addition to that, the nation is undergoing unbelievable strife and struggle because of this massive earthquake during Uzziah's reign that has left the nation crippled, both Israel and Judah, by the way. Mm-hmm. And what does Isaiah see? And in the middle of all that, when it's like, what can we possibly Trust in. Our king's gone. Our nation's in turmoil. Everything's falling apart. Isaiah sees the Lord. And where is he? He is sitting on his throne. Yeah. 
And so we look at our world right now, (laughs) and the headlines are blowing up everywhere, and Haiti just had another earthquake, and things are going on in Afghanistan, and our own country seems to be tearing apart. And if you were able to peel back and have a spiritual vision like Isaiah, you know where the Lord would be? On his throne. He would be sitting on his throne, carrying out a plan, his redemptive plan that he's not surprised by anything. He is in control, and he is going to make this beautiful for his people. That is our hope. And so, like, out of the gates to say he is sitting on his throne in the middle of all that, (laughs) that's a big statement. And not just sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. Right. Um, and that last line, the train of his robe filled the temple. You brought some of this out in the, um, the personal worship notes about what that means. But that's a big statement. Yeah. Every king had a train. Every king had a robe, and the robe had a train. And um, every time that you would conquer a neighboring kingdom or somebody that you went to war with, they would cut that conquered king's robe. They would cut pieces off it. And sew them into the robe of the conquering king. So his train would become longer and he would have these pieces of, of the robes from the kings he'd conquered. So the longer your train and the more pieces that were in it, the more powerful you were as a king. And so this, the train of his robe filled the temple. That visual imagery is telling us that the Lord has conquered every other king. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like that phrase, uh, where he talks about putting your enemies uh, under your footstool? Yeah, you find this all over the ancient world. If you go down to Egypt, we actually have sandals of some of the ancient pharaohs, and they would stitch into the bottom of the sandals the image of their enemies so that as they walked, they were walking on top of them. Okay. And their footstools were images of their enemies kind of holding up the platform that your foot rested on, and it was like, I'm trampling. I'm resting my feet upon it. It's a burden now to my enemies. They're underneath my feet. And it speaks of that. And so one of the other things that's really awesome about that idea of the train of the robe filling the temple, like he's got this incredibly long train, which we still, by the way, have that that tradition. Like if you see a bride come down the aisle and her the train of her dress. Does that mean she's conquered every other man? <laughs> no, but you tend to think like somebody <laughs> who's got that long – she may have, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> But that long that long dress, like you tend to think, oh, this must be somebody of importance, a king with a long robe. That's somebody of importance. Um, but what's cool about that image is, and this is not accidental, Uzziah has just died because he was like, I am worthy to stand in the temple of the Lord. And the Lord said, uh, no, no, yeah. you're not. Yeah. And he struck Uzziah with leprosy and he died. And so what's the image now? Of a train, the train of his robe fills the temple. Well, what's on the train of his robe? It's it's all these stitched in, these grafted in emblems of all of his enemies that he has conquered, and they are now worthy to fill the temple? I mean, that's the gospel, if, if you didn't pick up on that. Like, we are made worthy to be in the very temple of God, to become the temples of God, because we've been conquered, we've been made righteous, we have been grafted in. And so this idea of the train of his robe filling the temple, all the emblems of his enemies that he has conquered are now worthy to be in the temple. Those that have surrendered to him are worthy, but those who come to him and say, I am worthy enough, I will go into the temple, are unworthy. It's it's this – it's totally counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Um and we see, by the way, that that idea in the Old Testament. You remember when Saul was chasing after David, and it says, at <laughs> one point, David is hiding in a cave. Right. And Saul has to relieve himself. He had to the, do a number two in the dark. Yes. <laughs> that is correct. Yes. <laughs> so he goes into the cave, takes off his robe, leaves it there. And we're told that David comes and cuts off a piece of his robe, starts feeling guilty, and he runs away with a piece of his robe. And you're like, why would he do that? Well, that's the reason. And when he gets far away from Saul, he's like, oh, my goodness, you know, I shouldn't do this to the Lord's anointed. And he he actually repents of it. Well, what he was doing, taking off that piece of the robe, is he was, you know, anticipating saying, I am conquering you, Saul. Yeah. I'm going to be the one who grafts your, the piece of your robe into my robe. Um, that's where it all And comes eventually from. he was the one that conquered Saul. Yeah. Yeah. 
That is true. Yeah. So uh, let's see what else Isaiah saw. In this case, in verse 2, it says, Above it, the throne, that is, stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So seraphim are one of the two types of angels, I think, that we've heard about. We hear about seraphim and cherubim. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us about seraphim. What are they now? Well, you hear more often about cherubim, and cherubim are always considered like they're guardians of God's holiness. You'll okay. see, you know, cherubim are stitched into the temple veil to say man can come no further. Cherubim were at the Garden of Eden when man was kicked out with the, you know, the cherubim hood with the flaming sword saying you can't come back into the presence of God. Uh, cherubim were on top of the Ark of the Covenant kind of announcing to man, do not touch this. This right. is where God dwells. You can't come here. Seraphim, on the other hand, are these glorious angels. The word literally means uh, burning ones. And so they sit there, and they're just this glorious, radiant, burning, the appearance of fire all around them, um, which, you know, would have brought the connotation of, like, they're extremely holy in some sense, right? Mm -hmm. And so they have two wings, and they're covering their face. Why? Because even these seraphim who have no sin, who are in an, enti- an entirely different category of holiness where they're, they're burning literally. They're nothing like us, but yet they cannot look upon the Lord. Hmm. They, they cover their face because God is too glorious for them to, to look at. That's amazing. They cover their feet because their feet are, you know, the lowest part of their body, and so they hide that from the eyes of the Lord. And with two, they fly. And so the seraphim are – they're just considered these really glorious, wonderful um, angels that hmm. kind of signify the holiness of God. Hmm. Well, um, in this case, the, in addition to uh, their appearance, verse 3 says, And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. You know, um, <laughs> that's there's another uh, verse. Is it in Revelation where it talks about them calling out "Holy, Holy, Holy" from and they and they do that answering each other. It's like back and forth. They're mm-hmm. they're they're calling it out to each other. It's like it goes from one side to the other. It's uh, Revelation four eight. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Uh, So it's out of the Revelation song of the angels. But the amazing part of this, I used to always think that this was them like, you know, performing a concert for the Lord's ears, you know, just just sitting around and flying and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Uh The whole earth is full of his glory. But what's amazing, and I love what this brings out, is is it doesn't say they're singing to God here. Mm Mm-hmm. They're singing to one another. And so, like, that brings out this element that when we are in worship, you know, heavenly worship is the angels, and they're not just singing to the Lord. They're singing to one another. And what that means is they're just – they're working each other up. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. Can you get how holy he is? He is Beyond holy, they're like, they are singing about it, encouraging one another about how awesome their God is, and they're getting worked up. And, you know, I think one of the things when we go into into worship on a Sunday, we undersell that, you know, and it's true that when we come to worship, you know, in some sense, there's an audience of one. Right. All glory belongs to the Lord. You know, I'm not doing this as a show for anyone else, Right. But there is a very real sense where the Scripture invites us to understand that when we go before the Lord on a Sunday morning in praise and worship, it is to His delight, but it's also such an encouragement to the faith of other people. You know, when I, the reality is when I'm on a Sunday morning and I look across the sanctuary and I see somebody who is in absolute joy, who's raising their hands, who is smiling ear to ear, and I know that they're walking through a hard season in life, mm-hmm. it makes me want to sing hmm. because I see how precious the Lord is. I see what the Lord is doing in them, 
and through them in the middle of a hard season. When I see their praise, it makes me want to praise. And that's what I love about this. They're calling out to one another like, can you believe it? Look at him. Look how, you know, or <laughs> look at the back of our wings. <laughs> you know what? But he's amazing. He's amazing. They're working one another up. Right. And the scripture doesn't hide from the fact that they are doing this as an audience to each other as well. And I think we'd be good to remember that, honestly. Yeah. And what they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. In in Hebrew, anytime that you repeated a word, same thing is true, by the way, in Greek. You would mm-hmm. indicate intensity by repeating a word. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus is quoted as saying, truly, truly, I say to you. You know, it's like, well, why did he say truly twice? Did, did we think perhaps he was kidding? No, it's, it's indicating <laughs> intensity. He's like, no, no, really, this is important. So when they are crying out, holy, 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 that indicates this intensity. But in particular, repeating the word holy three times is something called a trihagion, which it's, it's the, it, what they call the thrice holy God. And this, it's just this idea that it's, it calls attention to God's triune nature. It's this mm-hmm. in threes again, calling out holy three times. Um, and the other thing that occurs to me when I look at this, and I just to point this out, folks, would you tell me that it's too loud on Sunday mornings? I just want to let you know that we're not shaking the posts of the door. We're coming close, <laughs> but we're not shaking the posts of the door. So these guys, their voices were so powerful that literally the building was shaking. <laughs> so I'm just saying, you know, apparently it's going to be kind of loud in heaven, too. Yeah. Um I wonder, like, I really do think that he's evoking some of this imagery, like the train of his robe filling the temple, you know, is like Uzziah went into the temple. He's no good, but the train of my robe fills the temple. Right. You know, Uzziah's, the end of his reign is marked by this unbelievable, devastating earthquake that kind of divides the time before and the time after it, this unbelievable thing. And here in Isaiah's vision, all of a sudden, he's shown that when the earth speaks, you know, the the foundations, the threshold of the temple begin to shake. And it's it's almost as God is communicating like I am the one mm-hmm. whose word causes the things to shake. It just shows I mean it's utter sovereignty. Anyway, that came to to mind. Yeah. No, I think there's a good I think that's that's good. Um and the other thing too from this verse that we sort of meditated on in personal worship this week was the fact that what they're declaring is that the Lord is holy, which we're good. He's the Lord of hosts. He's Lord over all. But the whole earth is full of his glory. Not will be full of his glory. Not was full of his glory, but is full of his glory. That sort of present tense aspect mm-hmm. of it. And, it, you know, it's, it's something that we tend to get caught up in all of the things that are wrong. And it's easy to do because you know what? There's a lot of things wrong. You were talking about it just mm-hmm. before, the things that are going on right now in our world, in our country. I'm a master. I'm a master at seeing all the things that are going on. Yeah. Around. It's easy to do. They're in our face. We, you know, Anytime that I take my phone out of my pocket, I'm, I'm thinking about renaming my phone. Instead of calling it an iPhone 11, I'm going to call it an iPhone what now? <laughs> What's wrong now? You know, Because when I take my phone out of my pocket, it's going to tell me what now, you know? I'm on the verge of leading some sort of Amish movement <laughs> that gets rid of these things. Oh, I'll tell you what, you know, it's there are days when I was like, I'm, I, you know, there are days when I'm really, really glad that I'm so well informed. And then there are days where I'm like, oh, man, wouldn't it be nice to go back to the era where we didn't know anything? You know, I, I'm, I'm old enough, ladies and gentlemen, that I grew up in the 1960s and 70s. And in the 1960s and the 1970s, we did not have this the 24-hour news networks. We didn't have the internet. I mean, it was around. It was ARPANET started in 1969. But believe me, until the World Wide Web showed up in like 83, there was no internet like we know it today. And we certainly didn't have smartphones in our pockets that had access to all this information. And a terrible (laughs) thing could happen in the next state. Something bad could happen in Georgia. And unless it made the evening news, it would take three or four days for it to reach our local newspapers before we would be mm-hmm. aware of what was going on. So there was a, and there was a certain innocence in that. There was a thing of like, if it's really, really important, Walter Cronkite will be talking about it. Just watch the evening news and that's it. <laughs> um, and now it's this thing of every minute of every day, they're putting it in front of our eyes. What's going on? What's wrong? What's broken? Mm-hmm. Who did some terrible thing? And then, worst of all, 
They're inviting me to tell them what I think about it. <laughs> if I could fix – I mean, first of all, if I could banish social media and this kind of – I would. I mean, it's too late now. Mm-hmm. The genie's out of the bottle. The horse has left the barn. I can't get – back to where we were before but if i could tweak social media and the internet in any way it would be to shut down every comment section and never allow anybody to tell us what they if you want to tell me what you think that's fine call me up we'll have a chat or come by we'll Mm -hmm. we'll have a beer or a cup of coffee or something i would love to know what you think i don't want to read it in a comment section because i don't want to get the it's going to be out of context in there if you say something when we're talking to each other that's kind of weird or offensive, I can ask you about it. I can be like, what? Come on. You know, and we can, we can have a back and forth. And that's all been, I'm getting on my high horse again. I start, you get me on social media. <laughs> I start preaching when you oh, get yeah. me on social media. You, know? you got the amen club right now. I, yeah. I'm right oh. with you. Oh. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but by the way, one of the yes. things that we can bring out of this, getting back to this passage, mm-hmm. is there's nowhere that we can turn of all the brokenness in the world and everything else, like everything that we're familiar with doesn't work. Like none of it works. And I think that's one of my favorite things about this passage is these angels, these seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And unfortunately, the way that we have kind of modernized the meaning of that word holy, what do you think of? Like we think of... Oh, holier than thou. Yeah, I think of pious or, yeah. Yeah. Self-inflated. That is is not the meaning of the word holy in the Bible. Right. The meaning of the word holy is unlike anything we know. It, that's what it means. It's other. It's, it's nothing we can understand. It's just entirely different than our brains can wrap around. Um, you know, when, when God first comes to, mo- and that's a real comfort, by the way, because he is entirely other than what we see in this world. He is so far above it. Um, and that is a, a great comfort. When, when Moses first encounters God in the burning bush and God comes and tells him his name, you know, he says, I am. That's my name. I am that I am. And the reason why he does that is because he can't be compared to categories that we have. He doesn't say, I'm love. He doesn't say, I'm mercy or that I'm, I'm good. It's just, I am. I, you can only compare me to myself because there's nothing in this world that can define me. Like I am, I'm so much greater, so much bigger than than what you can wrap your head around and the what you said you know when you repeat a descriptive word three times in hebrew it's superlative so holy 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 means holiest there's no other word that the scriptures use to describe god like that there's no love 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 there's no mercy 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 there's no forgiveness 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 and he's those things in infinite measure but with holiness this idea, the Lord is so much different than everything you know, is such a comfort because when we everything that we know is is faulty, yeah. but He stands so much higher above it, so sovereign over all of it. We can we can trust Him, and so but He's not just transcendent; He also draws near, and so there's this this un. Believable tension of this God that's so transcendent that we can't possibly wrap our minds around his infinity. And yet at the same time, this is the God who draws near to the brokenhearted and those who are crushed in spirit, the Bible tells us. He becomes a man whose name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we learn that about in, in Isaiah. Like, so it's this combination of a God who is so far above all the troubles that we see. He is, none of this is beyond his pay grade. All of it, he is working together for our good, and yet he is also with us. He's mm-hmm. not just transcendent. So it's like amazing. And and if you don't have a trust in his holiness, his otherness, his sovereignty over all the mess that we see, it would be really hard to get through a day yeah. <laughs> of yeah. headlines in yeah. this world. That's true. Uh, I think the other thing too that we should probably note when we're talking about this particular verse, it's uh, you know it's one of Pastor Tom's frequent sayings. He'll he says this a lot in sermons. I've heard it many times over the years. He'll say, "You tend to find what you're looking for," and in this case, where the seraphim are declaring that the whole earth is full of His glory, my question to myself and then to any of you all that are listening to the podcast is, "What are you looking for?" <laughs> 
when you go out, when you look at the world, when you see the world around you, are you looking for places where you can see the glory of God? Or are you like me staring at your phone in horror thinking, I cannot believe this happened again? You know, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm as guilty of it as anybody. And, and I was preaching to myself this week in personal worship where I was telling myself, I have got to stop looking for the bad stuff. I've, you know, I, I just have to, you know, it's like it, 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 they're not lying. The seraphim are not lying. The whole earth is full of God's glory. And we need to look for examples of that, I think, you know. And there's a difference. There's a difference between burying your head in the sand like an ostrich and saying, you know what, there's nothing wrong with the world. I'm just going to ignore it so I can be happy. That's not what, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is you don't go hunting for bad news as though it's an addiction. You know, yeah. you're just you're just looking for it because you're in awe of how bad it is. If you're going to be in awe of something, look to the Lord. Yeah. There if you're looking at stuff just to be in awe of how gross it is and there's nothing you can do about it, shift your awe and be in awe of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So Isaiah sees this vision, the Lord high and lifted up. He sees the seraphim, the burning ones. He hears their voices shaking the foundations of the temples like an earthquake. (laughs) And so what's his reaction? Verse 5, so I, Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. I This passage, this verse is – Isaiah is, is speaking what each of us would feel. If we, if we stood in our present condition before the Lord, the, the first thought that would go through our heads is we don't belong here. <laughs> we do not belong. We should not be able to see this, you know. Um, and I love the phrase, you know, woe is me. He's pronouncing doom on himself. Prophetic, with the prophetic, when a prophet says woe, I'm going to pronounce woe on you. That's like the ultimate doom. He's saying, I'm doomed. And then he says, for I'm undone, which is a word that means like unmade, uncreated. Whatever I was, I'm falling <laughs> apart at the molecular level. You know, it's, it's just a really powerful statement. Woe is me, for I am undone. Hmm. You know, there, it's interesting that, the way that the Bible describes uh, salvation all through the epistles in the New Testament is that we'll describe a new believer in terms of being a new creation, that God is making all things new. There's mm-hmm. this idea of God's creative power that is finally coming into your life and animating you to be everything that God initially designed you to be. So in one sense, when you're redeemed and you stand in the presence of God's power. He makes you new. He creates you in a direction. But when you stand in front of the Lord, as Isaiah is realizing (laughs) right here, when you stand in front of the Lord apart from redemption and you're just clothed in your sin and shame, it actually does a work of uncreation on you. And so so really, like what Isaiah is experiencing, like you said, is just coming unglued, undone, like Everything that I'm created to be is now falling apart. And, you know, I think it does so for eternity in either direction. Um, But God in this part right here is totally accomplished what he needs to accomplish in Isaiah. And let me stop for a moment because right here in verse 5 he says, So I said, woe is me, without context of where Isaiah is coming from. We read right past this without recognizing what it means to be called by God. Because, you know, even though this is his calling to be a prophet, we got five chapters before this where he has been a prophet. And what has he been saying? You go through Isaiah chapter 5, and you find out that he is just laying down woes. Woe to those who join the house and add field to field. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they follow intoxicating drink. Woe to those. Woe to those. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if a cart rope. And he just goes on. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And all of that is Isaiah, gunslinger prophet. And he's pulled out the guns and he's pointing his guns at everyone around him going, woe to those guys and woe to those guys and woe to those girls and woe to those people. And it's not until he says, 
Woe is me, for I am undone. Mm. This is the moment that he becomes the man of God's calling. And that is something when you're in leadership in the Christian church, when you're discipling others, if you ever lose sight of that, that you know you can point because there's enough woe. <laughs> there's enough yeah. woe to go around, go around in the world. You can look around and man, I, I just want to pull out the guns of woe. You know, <laughs> but you have to stop. You know, in one of the video games that I play, they actually have a weapon called the Blade of Woe, um, <laughs> and you get the you can you know it's like you pull out the Blade of Woe and lay down the Woe on someone. I'm like, yeah, you know, every so often you want to have the Blade of Woe, you just swing it around you, and Woe is you, and Woe is that. You know, we need some more Woes. Um, yeah, you and that and that would be a fun thing. Like, there's a lot of days where I would like to have the Blade of <laughs> Blade Woe. of Woe. <laughs> Well, <laughs> but you are a worthless messenger of the Lord's word if you have never stood in front of him to recognize woe is me. Yeah. Look at my heart. Look how unclean I am. Look how needy I am of mercy and forgiveness. Yeah. Um you'll you'll never be effective in ministry if you're if you're ignorant of the fact of how amazing grace is and how much you need forgiveness, how much you need mercy. Um and that this is why this is so powerful for Isaiah. Yeah. Woe is me. Um, the other thing, too, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, I think is a reference to Exodus 33, 20, where God says, no one shall see my face and live. Yeah, Isaiah mm-hmm. had to know that he was in trouble. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's yeah. like, I've heard what the Lord <laughs> says about this, you know. Uh, I'm not, and I've just been looking at these burning angels, and they're covering their eyes. Yes, like they can't endure it. Yeah, what does that mean for me? Yeah, it's basically I'm I'm just turning into the little stuff that I was made out of. I'm falling apart at the molecular <laughs> level. The other thing that, I love that. The other thing that I, we I sort of and I talked about this a little bit in personal worship this week too is this idea that he said I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and. On surface, on the surface of it, like if you're just reading that as a casual thing, you'd be thinking, well, is he like using bad language? Is he saying, but, but it really, I think, goes back to the fact that when, especially, and I pulled a bunch of different verses from the Psalms, um, just example after example after example after example from the Psalms, where the psalmist is essentially pointing out that with our lips, we reveal what's really in our heart. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's by what we say. That we, you know, what's in that, what's inside of us. You know, it's like the yeah. the 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 good or the bad on the inside comes out through the mouth. Um, yeah. And I think that's what he's saying is, look, you know, there's no way I can hot. All I got, I'm going to open my mouth, and you're going to know the truth. Yeah, and he's, you know, Jesus says as much when he's talking to people about the dietary laws. Jesus says something along the lines of, "It's not what goes into a man's mouth that makes him unclean." It's what comes out of a man's mouth that reveals his heart. Yeah. And so, you know, the language you use to build people up or tear people down shows a lot about your heart. Um, in church tradition, we're told that, and it's very likely that Isaiah was actually related to this, to the royal family. Um, so he would have been in the political circles. You know, I think tradition says that he was a cousin or something to Isaiah and you know, he would have been in political circles, and he's looking at a nation, I'm sure, that's tearing itself apart, tons of strife going on. We can't relate to that, of course. Not at all. And, you know, what is Isaiah saying? Look at how absolutely despicable our country is and the way that we talk to one another, what comes out of our mouth. We are hateful. We are unclean. We're despicable. And I am also a man of unclean lips. Like, look at what I have done, and here I am standing in front of this absolutely radiant, holy, wonderful, merciful God. I'm undone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's it's what hammers home the point when, you know, when Paul writes in Ephesians to not let any uh, corrupting talk come out of our mouths but only which is good for building up. You know, it's like the the, mm-hmm. the point really is it's not, you know, because people tend to get hung up sometimes on specifically what you say. And I'm like, I, I understand. I understand that we've got our 
you know, list of seven words you don't say in church or whatever you've got. I, I get that. But rather <laughs> than getting hung up on what word did you use, what I'm more interested in, I think, is what, you know, when, when, when you're speaking, especially to, when we talk to each other, is are we building up or are we tearing down? And if we're tearing down, mm-hmm. If if what we're doing is 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 pulling is bringing the other person down is is attacking somebody else, uh, and and again I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody. I can go on a rant mm-hmm. and become just as as sharp tongued as anybody I know. I don't know anyone that can lose control of their yap quite like I do. Um, <laughs> I know you know I I do, and and yet I you know when that's over. There's never a point, Sam, never a point where if I take someone apart and I'm, if I'm ranting into the wind and it's, you know, I'm talking about – sometimes I feel good when it's over. I got that off my chest. But when I light into somebody with some biting yeah. comment or something that just really you can see the light go a little dimmer in their eyes when you say it, there's never a point where I walk away and go, wow, I feel better about myself now. I always yeah, walk awful. away feeling like crap. I always walk away feeling like I have done something terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the 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 reason why I am no longer on social media is a, a small part of that is I get annoyed at what everyone is saying, but the the very big part of that is I do not trust myself. Yeah, I know I know that I I'm prone to say things in social media or online that I would never say to that person to their face in real life. And these are people that I love, you know, yeah. relatives or yeah. or friends or, you know, congregants or whatever. And I found myself really struggling to hold my tongue and it was like, why am I on here? Like this is no good. So let's look at verse 6 here because this is the Lord's response. Isaiah's response to what he saw and what he heard was what we just read, woe is me, I'm undone. And then there's the Lord's response to the words of Isaiah. Verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. you know, now, the, the first thought, when I was a kid and read this for the first time, I think I read this verse for the very first time when I was probably a teenager. And, of course, it, I was thinking that had to hurt. You know, I was, I was picturing like a cauterizing <laughs> sort of thing. And there may be some sense in which that was true. But why do you, what was the, what's the deal with the coal taken from the altar? Why, why is that important here? Yeah, so so what it's trying to get you to imagine when it says that it was taken from the altar, back in uh, these days when they had the altar at the temple, they would take an animal that would be sacrificed uh, for forgiveness of sins, and they would slaughter the animal, and then they would burn it on top of the altar. And as this thing is being consumed, of course, the blood then drips down onto all the hot coals that are underneath it. And it produces, you know, the the sweet smelling aroma of the sacrifice and all the the smoke and, and steam that goes up from that. And so to take one of the coals, when it says the seraphim flew to me, having a live coal that he'd taken from the altar, this coal is going to have the blood of the sacrifice on it. And so so what what do we hear here? Here's an angel that hears Isaiah saying, I cannot come into the presence of God because I am totally unworthy. I am sinful. I have done things with these lips that have made me unclean. I cannot come to his presence. And the angel who is being dispatched from God says, you need the blood from the altar. Yeah. Um, and so he brings this coal to him and touches his mouth with it. And, you know, you wonder, like, <laughs> you're cauterizing. If somebody takes a live piece of charcoal and puts it on my mouth, I'm not going to be able to talk afterward, probably. Right. <laughs> and it doesn't seem to hinder Isaiah's res- ability to respond. So I don't think, I don't think Isaiah went, ow, ow, you know, I don't think, we, <laughs> you know, that's what we're to imagine. But this is, you know, it's healing. And by the way, the healing, the blood that comes down onto the coal that is bringing Isaiah healing, what are we to imagine? There is an animal that has been sacrificed and consumed in the fire. You know, all of that, by the way, was all prefiguring Christ, that he was going to be consumed. You know, the fire of judgment, which is what that represented, would consume him and his blood runs down 
to provide healing and cleansing for his people. That, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel here. It's really amazing. Yeah. Isaiah knew he was in the wrong place. Isaiah knew that he was going to fall apart. And yet God's reaction to Isaiah was to say, and I think you even said this earlier, that it's, you're, you're in the right place because I've taken away your sin. I've taken away your iniquity. It's mm-hmm. like God makes us God makes it possible for us to stand before him without woe is me, I'm undone. Um, and that's yeah. going to be the thing. Some you know, someday it's like we hear we read a vision like this and we think, wow, heaven must be a terrifying place. I don't think it will be when when we're mm-hmm. there, you know, when we step through that veil and we leave behind our iPhones and the, the, the our, our sharp tongues and all the other bad stuff, and we step through that veil onto the other side, I think that the part of us that goes through is to give, it's the part of us that God has made within us. It's that new creation, and we're going to feel quite at home before the Lord. Yeah. We'll be we'll be in awe, but we will be quite at home. Yeah, and we've talked about this so many times in all of the episodes of this podcast. But one of the things you notice, like Isaiah's response when he is in front of the presence of the Lord is almost identical to Peter's response. You know, woe is me for I am undone is what Isaiah says. Peter says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. There's this there's this reality that when you stand in front of the Lord, you are utterly inadequate. And and there's so many of us that want to say, no, 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 I'm good enough, I'm good enough. But it's humility that draws the attention of the Lord. How many times in Scripture does it say things like, you know, that he is going to exalt the humble, but the proud he is going to bring low? Right. Like that seems to be the constant measurement. And so you look at the way that Jesus interacts in the New Testament. You know, when people come to him and say, I am worthy of God, God is lucky to have me on his team. You know, the Pharisees that come to him with that kind of attitude, like, I have no sin, I have no shortcoming, I am, you know, just amazing. Those are the people who get sent away. You know, I remember one famous preacher of the last century said, God sends no one away empty except those that are already full of themselves. Mm. And when you when you come like Isaiah, when you realize, oh my goodness, I've been pronouncing woe on all of those people, but look at me, woe is me, yeah. or you know, look at me, I'm a sinful man. That's when the Lord like bring them the bring them the coal, bring them the blood, like. It's it's the humble that recognize you need mercy. The Lord never turns that away, never. Yeah. When you go to the Lord and you say, I'm deficient, I need forgiveness, I need you, he is so eager to bring healing and to bring cleansing. Uh, and you see that right here in this next verse where it says, behold, this coal has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, your sin is purged. Like it's gone. The Lord doesn't see it anymore. He embraces you as though you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Like that's who he is. He <laughs> he doesn't look at Isaiah and say, well, you know what? You really are pretty unclean. Gross. Yeah. Next. Like <laughs> Yeah. It's it's that confession of neediness yeah. that draws the, the angels racing to get to him. That's the Lord. If we show up in front of God full, full, he empties us. If we show up empty, he fills us. Yeah, you know, um, I one of the verses that I uh, quoted in personal worship as a related verse for this week's passage is one of my favorite ones on this particular subject, Job. When Satan showed up and was talking to God about the people, God's like, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. He's the most righteous guy on earth. So so Job was the best of the best of the best. He was God's example. He was the prototype God held up and said, have you seen Job? That's a good mm-hmm. guy. In Job 42, verses 5 and 6, Job, Job gets a vision of God as part of the things he goes through. And he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in <laughs> dust, dust and ashes. It's like, you know. Wow. Woe is me. You know, Job's, Job was right there. So, And we've said this before. Like, we've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. 
it's it's easy to confuse what we're saying and say, oh, you mean the only way that I get to come to the Lord is if I grovel over how bad I am and I just have to go through life saying I'm no good? No, you're missing the point. Like Isaiah will walk away from this having said, I'm, I'm, I'm not sufficient. I'm inadequate. I don't measure up. But how amazing is it when the Lord then will send Isaiah – Think of what that does for Isaiah's value and meaning. The Lord chose me. The Lord sent me. The Lord cleansed me. The Lord loves me. He has changed my identity. And so think about the person who comes to the Lord and says, I am needy because I'm a mess. And the Lord says, I love you so much. And for us, I love you so much that I would give my son on a cross to redeem you. We are not allowed to go about the rest of our lives saying, well, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't matter. I, I, I'm not valuable. Are you kidding? God showed infinite concern and love and value for you. Right. You, but at the same time, you also can't go through this world saying, I'm really important because you didn't earn it. Right. Isaiah didn't earn this calling. He wasn't worthy of it. God gave it to him because God is amazingly gracious. And so we should be, you know, the most humble people, but people who recognize we are extraordinarily valued. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Second Corinthians five twenty one, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God clothes us in his righteousness. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't happen if we come to God telling God how lucky he is to have us on his team. <laughs> and then our our last verse today is verse 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then Isaiah's response was, Then I said, Here am I, send me. So Isaiah could not volunteer quickly enough. He, he, yeah. he, you know, Isaiah popped his hand up immediately. When the Lord said, who am I going to send? Isaiah's like, here I, here I am. I'll go. Me, 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 me. Me, me. Which, which, is, which is pretty amazing because if you've read the previous chapters before we get to Isaiah 6, you kind of gain some understanding of what this ministry is going to look like. Because Isaiah, though the, the last part of the book of Isaiah from chapter 40 to chapter 66 is very, very hopeful. It is super uplifting. But these first 39 chapters <laughs> are, are a little less so. Um, there's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of talking about, because Isaiah, remember, is before the fall of the northern tribes to Assyria. They're going to come through and do unspeakable things to them as a means of judgment, because they had become extraordinarily wicked. And the southern tribe of Judah is going to fall because they had continually spurned the Lord and were doing amazingly awful things and, and turned away from his mercy. But so the, the, the ministry that Isaiah is given is, you know, you're going to go and you're going to preach a message of eventual hope, but you're also going to preach that these judgments are coming. It's going to be a, a hard life. And as you'll see here, in, at the, if you read on, they're not going to listen to you. Mm-hmm. No one's going to listen to you. Do you want that ministry? And Isaiah's like, here I am. Send me. Yeah. Like, I want that. Um, I'll do anything. Like, you've just healed me. You've given me an eternal hope. I'm in. What do you need? I've seen you. I've seen how valuable you are. I see how amazing you are. I want to give my life to you no matter what you're calling me to do. And that is amazing faith. I remember when, when Laura and I were getting married, she said, what are you most fearful of in, in life and ministry together? And I told her that, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that God will give us a Jeremiah ministry. And what I meant by that is kind of the same thing that Isaiah is going to have to endure. Jeremiah is called and God says, I want you to go and I want you to preach these messages, calling people to repent. And God tells Jeremiah, you're going to go, you're going to preach with all your heart. It's going to, it's going to be sorrow filled. Jeremiah will be a prophet of tears and no one's going to listen and the nation is going to fall mm. and, your words will be tremendously meaningful, but not in your lifetime. Hmm. The, the people are going to ignore you while you're alive. Yeah. Ugh, you know? And yet these guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah are just unbelievably faithful to that calling, even though they didn't get to see revival in their day. And maybe Isaiah did a little bit with Hezekiah, but 
you know, for the most part, they were just stumbling toward destruction, yeah. these nations. Like Noah preaching for all those years and uh, nobody paying attention because he's telling them the rain is coming and they're like, what's rain? <laughs> yeah, right. We've not, I mean, we've not seen any of that yet. <laughs> but that's, yeah. that is a hard thing. How yeah. do you wake up in the morning and say, I am going to just continue being faithful to the Lord and yeah. what he has called me to do today when everything that you see by human sight looks out and says, I don't see anything changing. Yeah. Um, you know, that's where you have to pull back. And you have to realize that that the Lord is your reward. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That that you are faithful for His sake, not for circumstances. You, you know, it's you. You want to honor Him, and by the way, that faithfulness, even if you if you were faithful to lead a church and you preached the gospel and you did everything as faithfully as you could, and God chose not to multiply your disciples and he chose not to you know bring about a great harvest or a revival the lord is no less delighted with your ministry than if you'd had a huge ministry yeah um I think of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist is given a ministry where all of Judea is going out to him. Even the Pharisees are coming to him. The military soldiers are coming to him. Everybody wants a piece of John the Baptist's ministry. He's a rock star in some sense in terms of ministry. Everybody wants him. And Jeremiah weeps and has no one. And yet, you know, I wonder, like, when you when you take a step back, is the Lord less delighted at Jeremiah? No, because his faithfulness to the Lord was extreme. And by the way, it's the Lord who controls the results of your efforts, not you. And so by laying down control and saying, God, I am giving results over to you, but I want to be faithful in how I live, how I worship, how I serve you, man, that's a message that <laughs> in ministry that you've got to beat into your head again and again and again. Yeah. Yes. Duty is ours. Results belong to God. Yeah. It's uh, Paul writing about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 when he talks about us being servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found effective. No, no, not effective. <laughs> Faithful. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, uh, that's what God wants from us. He wants us yeah. to be fa- He calls us to be faithful. Uh, he'll br- he brings the harvest such as it is, but he calls us to be faithful. Yeah. yeah, you think of you think of Paul's calling, right? On the road to Damascus, the blinding light. I mean, very dramatic, kind of like Isaiah here. Mm-hmm. And he does one of those, I will go. Paul's life is going to be driven from city to city, riots, beaten, imprisoned. I mean, he's going to go through the ringer. And one of the greatest encouragements to me in ministry is when you read his swan song, Second Timothy, and you get to the last chapter, Second Timothy 4, the last recorded words that Paul wrote that we have. That chapter sounds like Paul is ending his life being like, I tried my best, but it just wasn't fruitful. I mean, he's talking about everybody's left me and, you know, all these things. And you can look back like Paul through his, you know, earthly sight is just saying, you know, I was faithful to God and there is stored up for me a crown of righteousness now. But he doesn't think that his efforts have made a huge difference. And now – 2,000 years later, we look at the ministry of Paul as the most significant ministry that has ever hit the face of the planet outside of Jesus himself. And so it's a reminder to us, you can't ever, 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 ever say, my ministry has not had any impact based on what you see with your eyes, because the Lord is moving and working and doing things that you can't even begin to imagine, and you see it with all these guys. Isaiah never would have imagined the impact he had. Jeremiah never would have imagined the impact. John the Baptist, (laughs) Paul, I mean, line them up. The Lord takes their faithfulness. Right. And in time just reaps this enormous harvest from their faithfulness, even though each of those guys couldn't see it in their day. Yeah. 
Well, that is a good word, and I think it's one that we're going to end on. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us and the beginning to this study in the book of Isaiah. Uh, We hope that you'll come back and join us each week as we go through this. Uh, Remind you that the messages that are being preached on Sunday morning on this same topic will be available on our website at riovistachurch.com, which is also where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash out of water. That's R-I-O Vista Church dot com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, and on Spotify or in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app. In other words, every place that fine podcasts are uh, free. Sam and I'll be back next week with another in the series on Isaiah, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.